Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. There is so much potential here, and there are so many reasons for young people to see this as a place where they are called to come as opposed to forced to stay are called to return, right? And I just don't think that we've done a good enough job of, of talking about that. And it- Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian meets world. We're back another week. It's Will and Neil. What up, man? Neil, you sound yeah. like I did a couple weeks ago. Oh, it finally made its way down the wicked trail. I wanted to ask you, man. Uh, last week you picked a horse for Derby. Yeah. You woke up next morning, and your horse had your practical pick, practical move <laughs> scratched. What's up with that? Yeah, I don't even know where to start with that, you know. I mean, maybe he had it planned all along. Maybe his practical move was drop out, you know. <laughs> I mean, he saw the writing on the wall. He just decided oh, yeah. to, to step aside for Mage and let him have his heyday. Okay, next question. Did you pick another horse? I did not. Easily could have said, yeah, I picked Mage. I easily could have. <laughs> but right, I'm not pick. a liar. so. Uh, I did not go with another horse. I did draw a horse out of the random draw that, that we all do amongst the okay. family. Who'd you draw? <laughs> I drew the uh, Japanese horse. Okay, yeah. So no winners because I had Happet Trice. Yeah. No winners. No winners here. It was the greatest two min- minutes in sports for the year, and and neither one of us picked the winner. Pretty part for the course. You got any app news for us? I have one piece of app news I wanted to talk about tonight. We'll make this quick, but I wanted to talk about Barbara it's- Kingsolver. She is the author of several books, but she wrote Demon Copperhead. If you haven't read it, it is basically kind of the Appalachian story of David Copperfield. You know, the, the, the novel, the classic David Copperfield. Well, she based kind of that story in Appalachia. She's from Southwest Virginia. She lives in a little farm there. And she wrote the book based on that. And she just won the Pulitzer Prize for Demon Copperhead, which a an Appalachian book has not won a Pulitzer Prize since like 1950s. So it's yeah. a pretty big deal. That's pretty impressive. Definitely. I saw a quote from her. She's a longtime resident of Appalachia, like I mentioned, in southwestern Virginia. But she says she wrote the book for my people 
because we are so invisible to the rest of the world and so persistently misrepresented. I couldn't be happier about the Pulitzer for this reason. Uh, like I said, I think it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, for sure. I did want to say I just visited Southwestern Virginia. Yeah. It is a really cool town. You know, we have family in Ewing, uh-huh, Virginia. Right. Not yeah. too far away. Shout out to Ewing. Shout out to our family in Ewing. We always used to go to a little nostalgia for you. I don't know if you remember, but uh, family reunions over in Ewing, family gatherings over in Ewing. Um, Abington. Aunt Betty's house. Aunt Betty. There you go. <laughs> but I'm in Abington. I was in just in Abington, Virginia. And I don't know if you've ever, are you familiar with the Creeper Trail? I'm not. So the Creeper Trail, I think it's roughly 35-mile bike trail. You can walk it, too. But they, I actually went on it. They, they will shovel, shuttle you up in the mountain on a bus if you, if you rent a bike. And then you can huh. ride the bike down through the Damascus into Abington. It's a really cool thing, and they market it really well here in southwestern Virginia. Another little piece of news I saw that this area just received $500,000 in tourism dollars amongst a number of projects in this area. The state just awarded them. So I want to give them a shout out there. One other place that we visited while we were here is Big Stone Gap. Are you familiar with Big Stone Gap? Absolutely. The movie, Ashley Judd? Yeah. Judd. I just wanted to mention that because when I think of Big Stone Gap, that's what I think of the movie. But it's like the small towns of where we grew up, Eastern Kentucky, the cold towns of Eastern Kentucky are very similar to the cold towns of Southwestern Virginia. <laughs> yeah, very uh, similar places. And I wanted to mention that because who we're having on tonight it lives <laughs> in one of those small cold towns of Eastern Kentucky. City boy came to the mountains and couldn't get out. I know I want to ask him, you know, if he if it rains true, what we always say is uh, that there's some magic in those mountains. And uh, I think our guests tonight would agree with us that once you become part of it, you, you know, you, you, you can't get you can't get away. One other thing I wanted to point out, because he's going to be on the show this week. I don't know if you're aware. You probably are because of your kids. But it's Teacher Appreciation Week. <clears throat> yep. Yep. No better guest to have on during Teacher Appreciation Week than a teacher. Yes. He's doing some really good things in that regard. That's not why we're having him on tonight. We're having him because we don't want to get a, forget about the floods that happen in eastern Kentucky. Right. And as a local councilman, it only makes sense to, to talk to him, right? Absolutely. We also wanted to say not only thank you for being on the show, but thank you for being a teacher during Teacher Appreciation Week. It's just a perfect time to have him on the show um, to talk about the floods and what what else needs to be done in Eastern Kentucky. We mentioned before on the show that when the cameras leave, that doesn't mean there's still a ton of work that needs to be done, a ton of help, a ton of relief that needs to be done in regards to the flood efforts. So we want to have him on the show and talk about that see what more needs to be done, but also what he, what he does there in regards to teaching and just appreciate him for that as well. Rather than giving all these teasers, man, let's just go ahead and get it, get it with it. All right, let's get him on here. <laughs> let's do it. 
Uh, on the episode tonight, we're joined by Luke Glazer. He was born outside the region, but is now firmly implanted as a resident of Hazard, Kentucky, where he teaches AP Calculus, Entrepreneurship, and Theater. He's also a city commissioner and sits on several boards, including the Appalachian Arts Alliance, Envision Hazard, as well as Teach for America Appalachia. Primary reason for really having Luke on the show tonight is the fact that um, Hazard in Perry County was one of the most hardest hit areas with the recent uh, devastating floods in eastern Kentucky. So we want to get his perspective on that and really find out what more needs to be done in regards to recovery. So Luke, thank you so much for being on the show and taking taking the time with us tonight. Thank you so much. This is the first time I've ever done one of these things. So uh, I'm excited to uh, excited to join you guys and talk a little bit tonight. Perfect. We're glad Perfect. to break in, Luke. Glad to break in. In regards to breaking you in, we, we <laughs> want to ask you the most, probably the most important question of the night. It's a question we ask everybody. Like most Appalachians are big on tradition, big on history. Our family, we're big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. This, this gigantic spread of food before the meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have your favorite appetizer, or just holiday dish? My favorite appetizer is fried pickles. If I see fried pickles on a menu, I'm going to order it regardless of the occasion or where we are or uh, quality. Where, where's the best fried pickle uh, when you go out to, out to eat? It is at Pig and a Poke in Hindman, Kentucky. All right. Nice. We, went there, we went there for Valentine's Day. And is it a side of ranch dressing or what do you dip the pickles in? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a ranch guy. Spicy ranch if they've got it. Nice. <laughs> All right. Now, now that we have that question out of the way, and before we get into flood recovery, which is, you know, what I alluded to, why we really wanted to have you on the program, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up in Hazard, Kentucky? Sure. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I was, uh, I'm the oldest of four. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a cop. And uh, I was privileged to go to really good schools growing up, schools where I had every opportunity I wanted, schools where I was able to do a lot and push myself and feel challenged and prepared me for the next uh, level of going to college. And so I went to the University of Kentucky and the plan was always to go to law school kind of had this sense that I had been living in a bubble um, and that, you know, I wanted to get out of that bubble for a little bit of time before, you know, actually going to law school and doing that whole thing. And uh, one of the opportunities that came across my path was Teach for America, which takes college graduates and puts them in areas of the country where teachers are desperately needed. So think inner city or think extremely rural. And a lot of these places just cannot hire teachers. I had spent some time in Appalachia during my junior year of college. I was part of a fellowship and two of the board members lived in Whitesburg and invited us all down. And when I came down here, you know, I grew up in Louisville. So I was prone to the stereotypes about Appalachia that everybody in Louisville is uh, based on what we see in the news and uh, what we uh, read. Right. Which is that, you know, I've really two things that somewhere past the Red River Gorge, everything became black and white because all the photos out of this area were black and white. And that's the place you go to on spring alternative spring break trips because they can't build houses themselves. They can't build churches themselves, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I found those ideas to be turned upside down on their heads in Whitesburg. You know, here was a place where there were brilliant, driven people who could be doing anything, but they lived in Whitesburg because they loved it and because they felt called to do it. And I was just blown away by their generosity and by their sense of purpose. And that really stuck with me. So after I uh, after that, I applied to Teach for America and uh, requested, you weren't supposed to do this, but I requested the Appalachia region because I wanted to get to know a little bit more about this area that was in the same state, but like felt like a different world because we just never went there, right? Um, so I got in and that was in 2013. You had to do one thing to, to pass, to, to, to become a Teach for America teacher. You don't have to be an education major, but you had to pass this exam called the Praxis. And I couldn't pass this test. I took it twice and I couldn't pass it. And so all these other teachers who came into the core with me, they're getting hired and I'm not. So the director of the program's like, look, just uh, we're going to probably we can get you a job in South Dakota or Baltimore. But while we're doing that, there's a teacher who's gone on maternity leave in Hazard. And we you can be a substitute teacher there long term for you know however long she's going to take maternity leave, which was not ideal, which was not what I wanted. I wanted a job, but I really didn't have anything else. Uh, in my uh, reservoir there. So I said, sure. And I came to Hazard and I started teaching Spanish at Hazard High School. And it was just, uh, I was the perfect puzzle piece and they were the perfect puzzle. It just fit. It was an incredible place. Um, I just really started connecting with the students, with the parents, with the community. And so the school district, which is already cash strapped because it's a Title I rural school district, found a way to hire me found the money to hire me on salary by that November. And that's a debt that I don't think I'm ever going to be able to pay off. So 10 years later, I'm still here. I'm still at my placement school. I've been moved to math. In 2018, um, I just got tired of going to events where our city leaders weren't there. I got tired of, uh, the you know, at the table where things were happening, city uh, elected leaders weren't there. So I decided to uh, run for office. It was kind of a shot in the dark being an outsider and running for city council. The top four got in and I was elated to come in fourth place. So that was good enough. And <laughs> six years later, uh, we've been able to do some good work. And um, I've been able to, you know, get into the community and and just make a home here. So I'm blessed. I'm excited. And, you know, there's just there's nothing like having a sense of purpose and uh, moving a place where you want it to go, or where you believe it needs to go with a good team. Tremendous background. I think you actually have a unique perspective when it comes to the area. I think Neil and I, growing up in the area, being from the area, we kind of carry a chip on our shoulder, especially when we leave the area, because we understand how people perceive the area, how we're sometimes seen, as you <laughs> have described, uh, of how you perceive the area when you first moved there. I wasn't going to ask this now. We were going to dive into the floods, but since you talked about your background, do you think you see opportunities easier than people that are from the area, uh, having been from Louisville and moved into the area? So having an opportunity mindset or an asset-based mindset is, is like, I think that's up to the individual, right? Like, you know, some people are just going to see the glass half full and some people are going to see it half empty. So I don't know if it has to do with where you come from, except for the fact that a lot of kids here are told that the only way to succeed is to get out right? There is nothing for you here. And people who stay here are perceived as not as successful as people who leave. And so part of my mission has been to A, convince kids that that's not true. And to B, make this a place where that, you know, even the thought of it is not true, right? There is so much potential here. And 
there is so many reasons for young people to see this as a place where they are called to come as opposed to forced to stay or called to return, right? And I just don't think that we've done a good enough job of, of talking about that. And in some ways, you know, I'm not, I don't blame anybody, right? You're just, life deals you so many difficulties that you don't have time to, to, to think about the assets or to impress those assets upon your children, upon your progeny, right? So that's just, it's become part of my classroom mission. And it's, it's also part of the reason I ran for uh, city council. And I've connected those two things and, uh, you know, making this a place that kids fight for and, and, and defend, uh, but also a place where we, you know, acknowledge the gaps and try to fill in those gaps so that it can become a place of opportunity. And if you want to come back here, there is a opportunity for you when you come back. Yeah, I read an article. I, I guess it's been a little while when it was released, but an Appalachian Renaissance, while young people say they're staying in. Yeah, I know you were quoted in that. Um you know, you've been here 10 years. You think there you have seen a renaissance in the area? Oh, yeah, man. It's, it's cool to be Appalachian now. It's cool <laughs> yeah, to be Appalachian exactly. now, right? Like you've got, like I always, I always think about the reason I said that uh, the Appalachian renaissance was you've got this explosion of like apparel now. And like everybody's wearing like New Frontier or Appalachian apparel uh, because it looks cool. And like, you know, there's, uh, you got um, like Tyler Childers and Chris Stapleton. So like culturally Appalachia's footprint is, is pretty big. And Silas House is becoming more of a you know prominent author. He was kind of localized, but he's now the Kentucky Poet Laureate, right? So like, it's just like this, the, people are starting to notice this place for more than its deficits, which they did for decades before and starting to see what it has to offer, which is just incredible. Um, and it's neat to be on the grade. It's neat, it's neat to have seen that in the last 10 years because I think it's something that has happened in the last 10 years. And I've been able to play, you know, a small part in, in, in specifically hazard and getting young people to, to think about this and, and, and to think about, about moving back. Well, let's talk about the young people for a second before we get into the floods, since we're going down this rabbit hole. It's all connected. It's all connected. Yeah. As a city commissioner, you have started what the, you refer to as, I guess the community refers to as the city of hazard civic fellowship. Mm -hmm. And it's all about um, providing opportunities for young people to be implanted uh, into civic development, revitalization in the area. How important has that been for the youth, especially you working with students, to not only get them involved, but also to get them to stay in the area? Right. So uh, we, um, where do I want to start here? A while ago, uh, I read a book, uh, probably the best book I've, I've, the best nonfiction book I've ever read called Hollowing Out the Middle. Uh, and it was a sociological study done in rural Iowa in the early to mid 2000s about what's going on in rural areas and why young people are leaving. Right. And they they divide, they categorize young people based off kind of how they act and how they uh, do things in high school. And the first chapter was about the achievers. Right. Which is about your like top tier kids. And one of the aha moments of that book was that public education is designed to push those kids as far as possible, which often means out of the community, right? And when they approached public school leaders about that, they were like, yeah, that's our job. We want them to succeed. And if that means not here, then that, you know, that we've done our job. We've educated them. I don't see it like that. I see this as a place filled with potential and filled with opportunity. And if we have those achievers move back, if we can get them to move back, then we have people who can do the most or do a lot, I shouldn't say the most, do a lot with that potential, right? I, I talk about it as like Plato and, and, and it's important for whose hands are, are building what's coming, right? 
And so the civic fellowship was designed, you know, the people like we went, we did a, a forum, a, a debate, if you will, before uh, the election in 2018. And we talked about young people and some of the people I was running against were like, well, I don't know why they're leaving. We've got everything we need right here. You know, we've got the university center of the mountains. They don't need to get like, it completely ignores the fact that people are leaving, that brain drain is a real thing, that there's data that shows, in fact, how many people are leaving and not coming back, right? And so this fellowship was designed and built to compete with Washington, D.C. and Frankfurt for those best and brightest kids, right? They want to get involved in government or politics or law or policy or anything connected tangentially to those things. I want them to come back here and work for me. And the way I compete with those other places is by A, uh, paying them. It's a paid in, uh, fellowship. And B, they're doing things. They're not going to get someone's dry cleaning. They're not answering the phone in a cubicle all day of her uh, angry constituents of Senator so-and-so. They are designing and funding and building a dog park. They are doing the groundwork to talk about how we're going to build a river walk in the next couple of years. Um, they are, uh, this summer, they're going to be looking at developing a sister city program for us. And when something happens in the community, like um, a homelessness crisis that we had a couple summers ago or a flood, they are at the table where it happens, being a part of those conversations. And that's just something you're not going to get at higher levels. There's a shorter line here for leadership because there's just less people. And I want them to see that, you know, if you come back here, you have a chance to immediately or very quickly lead. And I'm hoping that you know, if we get enough people to move back here, then uh, that spark that we need to catalyze things is going to happen uh, more quickly and more effectively and more comprehensively. That's the vision. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Neil and I talk about opportunity on here all the time and how it, it's important to provide that opportunity. You know, people don't know what they don't know. If you can provide that opportunity, they can uh, achieve great things. Well, and it's important to, to like, you know, create fertile ground. I'm not going to be the guy that thinks of the billion dollar idea that's going to hire, you know, a thousand people down here. I know my talents. My job is to create the fertile ground so that more people come back. And the more brain power we have come back, the more likely something like that is to happen. So it's my job on the front end of that to build a place that that young people feel like they have opportunity and feel like they can get joy and, and, and satisfaction and, and do things that 20 something kids want to do. You, you know, even with opportunity, Bad things happen. And, and some, one of the worst things that has happened in, in recent time were the floods that really devastated the area. And like I mentioned in your introduction, Hazard, Perry County was one of the hardest hit areas when it came to the floods of eastern Kentucky. And we've spoken about we've had in several episodes on the floods, on the recovery and, you know, that was at a time when the cameras were there, people were covering the area. But now that the cameras are gone, we don't want to forget about those those people. We don't want to forget about the devastation and the recovery. A week after the floods, a month after the floods, there might have been coverage. But this recovery is going to take not weeks and months. It's going to take years, maybe even a decade for these people to recover. So, we, we really wanted to have you on the show to talk about that as a city commissioner, as a representative of the area. But really, can we just talk about your own personal experience with the flood, what you went through? Sure. So I lived at the time in downtown Hazard. I lived on, on the street over from Main Street. 
And um, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a summer thunderstorm, like the summer thunderstorms that roll through here, right? It was intense, but, you know, usually they kind of come in and they roll through. And we went to bed and I remember the, uh, the, the alarm system going off on my phone a few times, but, you know, we kind of just slept through it. And then the next morning, just kind of got on my phone and I was like, okay, something bad happened. And I remember walking, uh, I walked, I got some donuts from the pantry shelf and took them down to the fire department because I think they had been out all night. And gave it to them, and there were a few McDonald's bags on there. And then the mayor rolled up, and I got into his car, and we kind of rolled around. And there was a sense that things were bad, but nobody really knew how bad, right? There was like water flowing down streets where it had never flown down before. Uh, and, um, you know, we had heard reports of bad things happening overnight. And so that day, what we did was we were planning, right? Like the the, the water was still rising, in the North Fork River. And so we were preparing because we had heard that it was like historic proportions. Nobody knew how bad, but historic proportions. So we just went to every business on Main Street, me and a few people, uh, our Main Street coordinator, a few other people. And we just kind of moved stuff up a little bit so that if they did flood, their um, produce or their, their, their wares would not get destroyed or ruined. By that night, there was a sense that we were dealing with something that was going to be international news, that we were dealing with not just like this is a bad flood, but this is a catastrophic, life-altering, separate things into before and after flood. And so the next few days were an experience and a lesson in what happens when you are at the epicenter of an international or national disaster. It was very much a learn-as-you-go learn sort of thing because most of your elected officials, be it in Hazard or in Louisville, most of your elected officials have no background in disaster management. The mayor is a teacher. He's a principal. I am a teacher. We had a business owner and a banker uh, and a, and a, and a uh, county worker on our city council. Nobody has dealt with this before, right? So you're looking at people in that leadership who, you know, are, are we got to do the best we can and deal with things as they come, right? So you know, the, the next couple days were probably 14 or 15 hour days where we were dealing with a not like just so many like glut of resources and people offering help and volunteer help. And where do we donate and how do we donate? We had to create. And when I say we, I mean, that that's a that's a collective. We that's everybody. We had to create shelters. We had to create donation drops off. We had to have people staff all those things. We had to create roles that we had never had before. And someone had to volunteer for those roles. It, it was an all hands on deck thing. And, and we were just kind of just building the plane. I hate saying this, but we were building the plane as we flew it. Right. Um, so my personal role, I realized that we were going to have a ton of volunteers coming in because people were already texting me from outside. And I realized that we needed to have a systems and logistics in place to intake those volunteers because I didn't want to lose that manpower because we didn't have anything together. So I kind of built and, and worked with people to build our volunteer intake structure and figure out where we were going to send them. And that was my job for about two weeks amongst 30 other micro jobs that just kind of popped into my life during those days. So it was a lot of, a lot of driving around and a lot of learning, a lot of 15 hour days and a lot of going to bed, very, very tired. But I was not, I mean, I was lucky because my home was not personally affected, right? We lost water for, I think four or five days. Hazard itself, Whitesburg is down the road from us and Jackson's on the other side. Both communities were like their main streets, their downtowns were just wrecked, devastated by the floods. Because there was a little pocket, a little upstream of us where for some reason it did not rain in that same amount, 
Hazard downtown, like it flooded where it like usually floods, like seasonally floods, but our main street was largely spared, which was a blessing for us because, you know, we could make, we could have a, a, a headquarters, if you will. And also like, it could be a place like a central location to get materials out where they needed to go because people could get to our community. So that was very much a blessing and we were very lucky to have it, but it did, you know, it, it, we picked up and, and started working because we could. We appreciate that. And we don't want to forget about the need, the ongoing needs of the community, which is why we want to continue to talk about the floods even beyond that first week, that first month. Um, we know that the state has provided funding and they started to rebuild outside the flood zones in some of the areas, which is great for the, for you know that area. But there's a lot more that needs to be done. We we've heard stories of nonprofits of of great affordable housing nonprofits that have helped to rebuild in the area. We've mentioned those on several episodes, but what, as a commissioner, as a representative, what are the needs now and what are the ongoing needs that these families that have lost their homes, have lost everything uh, with the flood, have been devastated? What do they need now and what do they need ongoing? It's a great question. The first thing is housing, right? And I am not the preeminent expert on any of this. These are just things that I've heard and 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 uh, meetings I've been in with people who know far more about it than I do. But the first and primary thing is housing. Um, as grateful as we were to the legislature for the help that they gave, they did not allot money for housing rebuilds or like new housing uh, in there uh, when they were, um, you know, putting out that that funding last year. So we are looking at right now a minimum of 1,200 homes in the most impacted and distressed counties, right? That's uh, they'll, they'll use an acronym called the mid-counties, most impacted and distressed. So you're looking at we still need 1,200 homes. We still do have people in trailers. Um, and, you know, the, the, the reasons why we haven't been able to get them homes are complex and varying, and there's all sorts of things that goes into that. But right now, the preeminent need still and will be for a while, uh, we just need new housing. Um, you know, it's when people build a house or build a trailer next to the river, it's not because they are stupid or because they don't know any better, right? It's that it's the best option available to them right? It's the best option available to them with their income and with what they are able to do. And, and a lot of that land, especially is like, you know, especially these homes that have never been flooded before, right? There's a thousand year flood. Like, you know, you guys are from the area, you know, how people are connected to the land and like how many generations back it goes. And, you know, for some people like your family plots are like right next door, right? That desire for normalcy and that, that the ties to kin and to taking care of your family and that desire to take care of your family that's going to overcome fears of getting flooded again. So, you know, we are trying to get people to, we're trying to access land that will not get flooded again. We're trying to find funding and to build houses on that land. And we're trying to get people to move into those houses, right? That is going to be a project that is probably, that is not probably definitely going to go into the 2030s. So that's the first thing. The second is all like the long-term collateral damage, right? Like mental health. A lot of people are suffering PTSD. There's a bad thunderstorm. People start freaking out. Our local government, city government, with lines of credit has spent, by my last, by the last meeting we had, $11 million on repair. And all Just that. Just city of Hazard. That is my understanding, yes. $11 million, which is about 50% of our annual budget. 
we have received. Now, we have spent that with an understanding that a lot of it is going to reimburse by state and FEMA. We have received so far back $217,000, which is roughly 2%, a little shade under 2%. FEMA moves slowly. I'm not going to I'm not going to knock them for that, right? They've got a job to do. They're doing it as effectively for the most part as effectively as they can. But if the community of Hazard, which is already struggling, which is already impoverished, which is already, you know, a place, you know, all the all the indicators, right? We're usually in the red. If we spend 11 million dollars on flood recovery and we do not get that back, it is going to devastate us. We are going to be bankrupt for all extent and purposes. And if your local government goes under, there are a lot of problems that happen after that, right? I think that we, it is my opinion that we have done this as responsibly as we can. But as our mayor often says, we had to spend that money, right? Roads had to get fixed. Bridges had to get fixed. Water lines had to get replaced. Gas lines had to you don't have an option. You have to do those things for your citizens. And we did it with the good faith of the federal government and, and, and our state legislators and governor that we would get as much of that back as we could. We fully expect to be on the hook for a little bit of it, but it's a number that we, it needs to be a number that we can take care of. Now, that's not something people can necessarily help with. I just that that's something that's sure. on all of our minds. And I wanted to get it out there to people just to know, like, you know, that's the reality 10 months after that we're dealing with. Yeah. And like, like I mentioned, it's not going to be 10 months. It's going to be years. years. Um, that, that not only the families, but the city, uh, the, the entire area just needs support. You, you know, you mentioned family, you mentioned the land. Why do you think people in the area chose to stay after the floods? These documentaries have popped up now. I know 100 Days in Appalachia just released a documentary. There have been some good pieces about uh, showing those people, those families that have chosen to stay. Do you have any personal perspective on why those people chose to stay? I, me and Neil have a kind of have an understanding, but just uh, kind of get you uh, your perspective. Sure. Well, and I'm not from here, so I can't answer this as effectively as somebody who is from here. But even without the flood, I think that there's a certain call to this place, right? Even if you move away, there's there, there, there's just a call to come back you know, even if it's just a visit, we had a meeting with state leadership and Senator McConnell was there and it was it was local leaders. Um, but there was a lady and she stood up and 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 just kind of I mean, I don't want to say it was a rant, but it was it was just calling out what I think needed to be called out. Right. Things were moving too slow. There was a disconnect between the bureaucracy and what was happening on the ground. And she had a quote. And I just pulled it up here because you mentioned that she said, if you're from the mountains, it's more than just a pile of dirt. We live here. If you're coming down the mountain parkway and you see the mountains, you can breathe again. Right. And I just like I think she said it better than than I could put into words for your for your podcast here. Right. I think that there's just there's just something that calls to people. I think it's in their blood. And I don't think that a flood is going to stop something like that. Right. I, I think that people will move out of here only one day. If they have if it comes to that, they will move out of here if they are forced to. And that's it. I love it. We say all the time there's something there's something magic, something magical in those mountains. There was an article a couple of years ago from the New York Times. It was like, uh, what's the matter with eastern Kentucky? I think it was what it was yeah. called. And there was this like talk like there was this like conversation about like, you know, 
maybe the best thing to do is to move away. Like maybe there need to be political incentives to like get people out of there. And I just, I remember even like two years in, because uh, it was a while ago, I remember reading that and I was like, there is no way unless you're threatening people that some of those folks are going to leave. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, well, I'll read those with my students as part of my curriculum. And it's fun to get their, it's interesting to get their reactions. You're, you're so connected to the youth and, you know, the youth and so are important to an area, especially small town, rural areas. So we commend the work that you're doing there um, as a teacher, as an AP teacher. I know you have uh, put in kind of your own curriculum in regards to the AP courses and have not only taught them AP calculus, but taught them how to think through problem solving, which I think is really important for the youth. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, I'm going to ask you guys a question. Uh oh, I don't know if you like, I don't know. Were you, were you math guys in high school? Did you like math? I did. You both did. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then you're 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 the wrong people to ask, but I'm still going to ask. <laughs> I was, like, I was take, a finance major, but Will over here, he he's a scientist, so fire away. Okay, so, so you're both you're both STEM guys. You're both nerds. Okay, that's fine. I get it. <laughs> but like, take your average student, put them in, in a high school class right now. They're learning algebra, and they're struggling with it a little bit. You know, they're they're they're, 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 they're they get good grades, but they have to work really hard for them. What do you think as they're learning like exponent rules? What question is going through their head? When am I ever, when am I ever going to use this? Yeah. That I was a struggling math student in high school. Like I got good grades, but I struggled through it. And I remember so clearly sitting in those classes. I don't even remember what we were learning, but I was like, when in the hell am I ever going to use this stuff? Right. So fast. I was an English major in college, by the way. Fast forward four years. They're making me a math teacher. I'm going to be teaching AP Calculus. I resolved before we even touch content, I was going to answer, I was going to be able to answer that problem for kids. I was going to be answer, I was going to be able to answer when you're going to be able to use this. So let's say that we were tonight, you, the three of us, we were going to go, we were going to decide we're not ending this podcast until we solve world hunger, right? Probably be one of your longer podcasts. <laughs> what we would do is we would probably start with like researching the background of hunger. How long has it existed? How does it impact different people? Uh, what solutions have been tried before it that, you know, have worked or maybe not worked, right? So we'd research the background of it. And then we would probably debate, well, like, I think we should do this, or maybe we should do this. And, you know, we'd come up, we'd, we'd, we'd brainstorm, we'd generate some ideas. And then eventually we would pick the thing that we thought would most likely work. And then we would try to implement that thing with our unlimited funding that we have. And we would evaluate it and see if it worked. And that is the exact same way you solve a math problem. You channel your previous learning, you make an educated guess, you debate your guess with everybody else in the room who has different guesses. You figure out where you went wrong or where you think you went wrong, where somebody else was right. You put forth your best answer and you see if it's correct. So we don't learn exponents just to learn exponents. Math trains us to solve real world problems. It is training our brains to solve the problems in the world that we're going to go out and try to solve after we graduate and grow up. And so if we are, if that is true, then it is our job as math teachers, in my opinion, 
to talk about real world problems and to channel that same problem solving model into these real world problems. So I developed a curriculum called Calculus Creates Problem Solvers. And what we do is we talk about real world problems. So we will do Socratic seminars in the fall in my pre-calculus class where we'll watch videos or read articles about Eastern Kentucky. And then we'll come in and we'll talk about those things, right? What's real? What's exaggerated? You know, what did they stereotype? What did they get right that we don't necessarily like, but, you know, we can't really argue with? And, and kids learn about the area they're from that way, right? Like the University of Kentucky, they have separate data on Appalachian students and compare them to everybody else to see how they're doing, right? Students don't know that. And after they leave this class, they, they, they know that and they think about why that's the case, right? So in the fall, we learn about all these problems. And in the spring, where we currently are, we engage in what's called a jury project modeled after architecture, uh, colleges of architecture, where students engage in solving a community problem. And they partner with me and a community member to kind of solve the problem. So right now we have kids working on uh, the opioid epidemic and they're trying to get like a Narcan training in our school. And we've got kids who are trying to figure out like there's a disconnect between employers say we can't find the people to work and people say there's no jobs. What's the disconnect there? So they're trying to work on a job fair. Um, you know, the 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 evergreen one, like, you know, why do people think there's nothing to do here when there are things to do here, right? The the goal of that is for kids to to not only stand that 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 the world at large thinks of them as another and that we can push back against that narrative, but to think about the problems that exist here and why they exist and what we can do to solve them. And it's my goal that we can kind of channel that into a passion for the area that we talked about earlier in this podcast. That's why we love having teachers on this show. They just bring the knowledge. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And gave me some great tidbits to share with my current sixth grader who is a math whiz. So Yeah, oh, dude, dude, I love it. Can tell him, tell him, I, I can't wait for him to get to calculus. He'll love it. <laughs> As a commissioner with your commissioner hat on, even beyond the floods, what vision do you have? Uh, for hazards? Is that something you want to talk about? Um, just maybe even for the region as a whole? Yeah, so it kind of connects to what we talked about earlier, right? Like, I want this to be a place of possibility. I want this to be a place where young people are like, I can't wait to move back there and get my hands dirty trying to make things better, right? And so my my slogan when I ran the first time was open for people, open for business, open for opportunity. And uh, I'm not a guy who likes to kind of get complacent. So I try to put out a vision every time I run and like, here's what I'd like to get done in the next two years. Um, I haven't put that one out yet. We got elected in January, so I'm a little behind. But, you know, it's just it's always like, what's the next thing we can do? Uh, you know, what's who are the next people we can bring on board? What's something that is really what like what's something that calls people to move to a place? And how can we bring that here? Right. The obvious answer to that is jobs. I told you earlier, I'm not going to be the guy that comes up with the, the, the thing that employs a thousand people. Right. But I can create a place where businesses, when they come, are really, really impressed. Right. We heard a while ago that, you know, one of the things that a business will look at is your downtown area. What's going on? Are there things for young people to do? Are there things for families to do? Right. And so how your downtown looks and what's going on there is important. We when I first got elected, we hired a downtown developer or Main Street coordinator. And I worked with her to pass an incentives program where we will subsidize businesses that move into the Main Street area. And we've had over 30 businesses uh, since 2018. Um, and very few of them have closed. I think we've had two or three close in that same time. So okay. we've seen an explosion on Main Street, which is not uncommon, right? You guys are from Pineville. You're familiar with those. You know, what we also, I think, are, are, are working on and really good at is telling our story and making that part of the narrative, right? When you come to Hazard, there are things happening 
And you can get in on that if you want to. And, you know, I think if we do that long enough and effectively enough that we are going to see that job growth, that we are going to see that business growth. Um, census came out, us and Pikeville were the only two cities in Eastern Kentucky that had grown since 2010. And I came in at the tail end of that, so I won't take full credit for it. But I like to think that that's part of it. Yeah, two two things that really help a downtown, help a city when you're ranking it or when you're putting it on top of the list. One is leadership and two is marketing. You know, you have to market your city. You have to talk about your city. What is the main attraction and hazard? Um, I can tell you what it is and then I can tell you what I would like it to be. What, what it is, is the Mother Goose house. <laughs> the house that was featured on Oprah that looks like a goose, right? Like that's our that's our thing. That's what people are... Uh, uh, that's what people come for if they're just, you know, if they're driving through town, that's where they got to stop. Um, and we're trying, we've actually worked with that. We're putting that into all our branding now because we realize that's what people like. What I think it is and what I'd like people to see when they visit is the people, right? That's our strongest asset, right? You come here and and people are just, they're friendly. They want to know about you. Uh, they, you know, they want to lay out the red carpet for you. And, you know, that's the same in, in most small towns. I acknowledge that. But there's just something special about this place. And when I say this place, I don't just mean Hazard. I mean, Eastern Kentucky. When I think of like when my, when my friends or my family want to come down, when I, what I want them to do is I want them to be at some sort of city event where they get to just meet people and meet the people like the folks that are doing stuff here every day and just get this overwhelming sense of like community. That, I think, is what I want the main attraction to be. And then, you know, navigating that is means trying to fill the calendar as much as possible with stuff to do. I think Neil has started some rapid fire questions. So just to add to that, what, what's your favorite thing to do in the area? Oh, just, just, just spend time with my people. Right. Like, so like the mayor uh, had really pushed for music festivals. Uh, so we've got the Northport music festival in July and we've got Oktoberfest now shut down main street. You know, it's, it's uh, we're not getting, we're got we're not getting big name bands. We did get Sunday best one particularly memorable Oktoberfest. Then then everybody's down there and you got tourists there and you got all your friends there and you're just hanging out, having the time of your lives in the place that you're, you know, you, you built my wedding uh, next week. That's not necessarily an attraction, but our reception um, I've saved all my favors and cashed them in. We're shutting down main street and we're doing our reception on main street because the it's a celebration of place as much as it is a celebration between my fiance and I, because I want people to see like we built this together. We have revitalized this together. This is the culmination of 10 years of work and we're not done. So, you know, my favorite things do like we, my, my fiance and I, we did a, we went downtown a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday morning. We did yoga. We stopped and got a coffee at the new coffee shop. That's been here for about two years now. Uh, we bought a toy at the toy store for her friend's baby. And then we went to the farmer's market and that was just a hell of a Saturday. And like, that's my vision for what, when people come visit, that's what I want, the kind of stuff I want them to be doing. What's your favorite spot or restaurant in the area? Oh man. So Francis's moved downtown a couple, like a year and a half ago. And they're the only 24 seven restaurant in town. And, and just like being able to, like when I lived downtown, being able to walk there, whenever I wanted to and get food was top notch. So when I think of like a place that I'm going to send people to, that's probably where it's going to be. Francis is downtown. We are, we, the, the dream is to get like a sports bar or uh, like a, like a more evening uh, like restaurant downtown. And so it'll probably become that place when we eventually get that developed. But for now, I'll give that to Francis. Good food. Very cool. Uh, important question. Since you talked about uh, food, cornbread or biscuits? Oh, I like biscuits. Another important question. We know you, you already told us where you're from. So uh, this may be this may be a little touchy 
subject or touchy question in regards to where you live now. Cards or cats? So I grew up a Louisville fan, and then I went to UK and drank the Kool-Aid. Um, so I cheer for both of them because I'm very passionate about this state. But if they're playing each other, I will cheer for Kentucky. You can't really kick Louisville while they're down. Like, they're really down right now. So you feel kind of bad insulting them. But uh, I'm hoping for Bates. And Matt Jones would say this, right? It's more fun when they're both good. <laughs> so we ask every all of our guests this. I'm interested to, to hear their answer every time. But what's what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Appalachia? My students. My students, right? Like, I'm not a big hero worshiper guy. I don't really get into cult personality things. Like, you know, there's people who are like, oh, this politician or that politician or that athlete. I don't really get into all that sort of stuff. But there are some students that I think of that that I would I would I would go off a cliff for them. They're just they've they've beaten impossible odds. They've come from backgrounds that I never would have dreamed of when I was a teenager. And and they're just they they they're doing incredible things, whether they leave or whether they decide to come back. I would obviously prefer them come back, but I love them for whatever they're doing. And if I can impress upon them like a passion for where they're from and, you know, strong roots and recognizing that where you're from had a role in where you're going or where you are, then I've done my job. So when I think of Appalachia, I think of the reason that I'm still a teacher and, and the reason that I, I love what I do, which is getting to work with brilliant kids and 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 helping shape where they're going to go with their lives. That's a great answer and great perspective. And uh, another question that we ask everyone, you mentioned celebrating place as part of your wedding. We, we kind of ground our podcast on place and perspective. Place is really important to Neil and I. It's really important to Appalachia. It's like a character in and of, uh, of itself. So we wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear this answer, uh, considering your background and what you've spoken about here. But just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? I wrote down, you said place is a character. I wrote that down because I like that so much. Right. Um, where is home? So like there are times and especially a couple of years ago during COVID, I thought about leaving, thought about going back to school and I don't remember, like, I don't remember what the specific thing was. It was probably like an event somewhere, being around the people you love. And I was just going home and it was just a beautiful night and the stars were out and the mountains were doing their thing. And every so often I just get that, that feeling of like, just incredible happiness and, 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 and purpose that like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And this is where you're supposed to be. And I can't name that feeling. And I don't think I can quantify that feeling. But like, that's what home is for me is like, just have it like having that feeling at the end of the day, and it's not going to happen all the time. But when it does happen, I think you know, you're in the right place. A great, great perspective. We want to thank you, Luke, for for being on the episode for for sharing your thoughts, sharing your perspective. But we also want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else you'd like to say in regards to flood recovery, anything that people can do going forward, not just now, but into the future. Sure. So I talked earlier about like the avalanche of resources that came to us, right? One of the lessons we learned as a small town, I, I, we're really trying, we're going to work with Maysville who got hit by the tornado um, a couple of, couple, like last year or two. We want to build like a toolkit or a one pager for like small towns like your community's been hit by a natural disaster here's what not to here's the lessons we learned right one of the things was that like you know we thought that there'd be an organization that would like take care of volunteers and do all that and really what we learned is that the best people to take care of volunteers is your local nonprofits or your local home builders who are already doing that work so my my the last thing i want to say is like you know for those of you who are listening 
And, you know, we've talked about how, like, it's not over. Don't forget about us. If you've got any sort of, uh, of ability, donate to our local housing uh, folks, our local housing nonprofits. And Hazard, it's the Housing Development Alliance. Each community is going to have its own. But, you know, those are the people that are doing the real work. They're the people who are still taking in volunteers, who are taking in the uh, alternative spring break kids, who are taking in the volunteers over the summer, right? We're going to be building houses for another 10 years. So if you've got any sort of ability, look at those people, help them out, right? The Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky is a nonprofit foundation that is here in Hazard. It's not outside of Appalachia, it's here. So they know where the things are needed and they can get resources to places where they're most quickly needed. So like, those are the places that can make the most impact the quickest. Um, and, and so I just wanted to shout them out as, as the two places that, that are doing the good work that we're doing the good work immediately after the flooding and we'll continue to do the good work um, for the next couple of years. So, uh, you know, it would, yeah, that was kind of what I learned about natural disasters that like outside resources are going to be super helpful, but the people who make things happen are the people who are here because they know the area better than anybody else. That's great. Uh, Again, thank you so much for, for what you're doing there in hazard for the work you're you're doing as a commissioner, but also the work that you're doing in students and the work that you'll be doing going forward. And we appreciate you being on the show. Awesome. I'm very grateful to you guys. And it's been a great conversation. It was nice to meet both of you. Well, man, Luke is doing great work up in Hazard, Kentucky. Just to talk to him, I'm thoroughly impressed with his uh, dedication to the city, but also his dedication to the classroom. He's a great leader for their community, and uh, I I know they're grateful to have him, and I'm grateful to have had him on as a guest. Definitely, it was good to hear, you know, what more needs to be done, like we said, in regards to the flood efforts what he's doing there in Hazard in regards to the efforts as commissioner, but also in the school system with the kids. You could hear his passion kind of came across in the episode as well when he started talking about the kids. You know, when he heard the word Appalachia, that was really the first thing he thought of, his students. And I, I thought there was no better point to make in regards to having passion as the teacher than the thinking about your kids first. Yeah, no, it was perfect. We've heard a lot of different answers to that question, but uh, I thought that definitely, that answer definitely fit him. So like I said earlier, city boy came down to the mountains and uh, fell in love, you know, not only with, uh, with a girl, I guess, but also with the, with the mountains. Yeah. Like we always say, that's easy to do. We just got to get people here. Um, that's right. Well, I, I wanted to ask you now that we, you know, we've spoken to Luke, you heard throughout the episode, some of the, eff- some of the things you can do in regards to continuing the efforts and help out in, in regards to the flood. But I wanted to ask you, since we've already spoken to Luke, you have a, a app biz of the week for us now. Well, yeah, actually I do. I, I wanted to highlight Luke's favorite restaurant there in uh, local restaurant in Hazard, Francis's Diner in Hazard, Kentucky. Wide variety on the menu. I have actually been there myself before and would highly recommend it. So if you're ever in Hazard, uh, you definitely want to stop in Francis's and uh, get a good get a good meal while, uh, while you're in town. You can check them out on Facebook, Francis's Diner on Facebook. Look it up. Make sure you uh, give them a follow. Nice. Shout out to Francis's. I appreciate that. One other thing I did want to mention, because you mentioned one of uh, Luke's favorite restaurants, 
I wanted to mention one of the favorites of his better half. Told you that I spent some time this past week in Abingdon, Virginia. And one of the things I did and one of the things that he recommended to do was go to the Barter Theater. So the Barter Theater is this historic theater in Abingdon, Virginia. It's actually the state theater of Virginia, but it started in 1933. It opened its doors proclaiming with vegetables you cannot sell, you can buy a good laugh. That was what they sold the theater on in 1933. The price of admission then was 40 cents or equivalent to the amount of produce. So that was how they got people through the doors then, but it's been going strong ever since. Like I said, it's the State Theater of Virginia, and it's known worldwide as one of the special places. And I just wanted to mention, you know, I'd never been to Abington. It's a cool little town. It's one of those special little towns in, throughout Appalachia that we have. You mentioned the magic in the mountains. A lot of these small towns have magic themselves as part of the mountains, but also just these special places that people not only grow fond of, but even if they move away, have a special place in their heart. Whether they move back or not will always be part of that area. Abingdon's one of those places, I feel like, even though it was my first time to visit. I really enjoyed it, really had a good time. If you ever are in the area, if you're ever considering making a day trip or just a trip in general, Abington's a really special place to visit. Yeah, Will, I'll keep that in mind next time I'm there. Now that we're at the end, I guess we can end it like we usually do, Neil. Until next time. Peace. Get better. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong. Nothing's again.